Today's Old Testament teaching text is Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Today's Old Testament teaching text is Psalms 126. Is this the right one? This is not right. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Okay. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you do are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. Have I spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe? How, then, will you believe it if I speak of heavenly things? The word of God for the people of God. Welcome again to First Free. I wonder um, this morning how you feel about surprises. Just in general, uh, do you like being surprised? Because see, we're in this, this teaching series called All Things New, and uh, it's hard to talk about all things being new without talking about the occasional surprise. And so I wonder if 
you're the kind of person who likes surprises or not. You know, if, if you are having a birthday party, you know it's coming up, would you prefer it to be a surprise party or do you want to know everyone who's on the guest list, every item on the agenda, or in, in the same vein when you get a present, maybe at said birthday party or at a Christmas, would you rather know what you're getting? Perhaps you make a list that you give to anyone who wants to buy you something with links to the product on Amazon and notes about size and color, and you even make sure everything you buy has a fantastic return policy just in case they mess it up. Or, or do you prefer to have that gift be a surprise? Do you prefer not knowing? And you might say, well, it depends, you know, who's buying the present or who's throwing the party. How well do they really know me? Will they invite the right people? Will they get me the right color or size, something I actually want? <clears throat> and, of course, there's all sorts of negative types of surprises. You know, bad news about our health or somebody else's the loss of a job, an investment, tanking, a friend moving away. I'm sure you can name many, many negative surprises. And when we've mostly experienced negative surprises, or at least mostly remember negative surprises, um, of course that'll close us down to the real joy of surprise because it always is a sort of uh, anxious thing. In a positive light, um, surprise means to cause to feel wonder, astonishment, or amazement at something unanticipated. And I think when we describe it this way, who doesn't want to be surprised? Who doesn't want to feel that? Who doesn't want more wonder, more astonishment, more amazement in their life? I do. Um, our three-year-old son, he loves causing surprises right now, um, being the reason that you're surprised, and particularly by doing the same thing uh, over and over again. Uh, right now he has a, I guess it's like a toddler chair at our dining table, so he can climb up it himself. And so every night we say dinner's ready, he comes to the dining room, but before we can sit down and eat, he says, okay, you guys have to go away and don't look. And he, he climbs up, once we're in the kitchen, he climbs up on the chair, we come in, oh wow, you did that all by yourself? I'm so surprised. Um, he desperately wants to cause us to feel wonder and astonishment and amazement. At something unanticipated. He wants to surprise us. And of course, he loves receiving surprises as well. Which is the case for most kids, right? Especially when they're young. And it's often perhaps easier for them to, to receive a surprise as a true gift. Um, they, they, can't, you know, they can't recognize all the, all the cues and clues that Something's about to happen, so they receive it really well. And um, it's just easier 
for kids than adults to receive surprises. And, and I wonder if that's part of Jesus' explanation in our story about being born anew. And I wonder if any of that has to do with why he says later on when all these kids are being brought to him in his ministry and the disciples are like, (laughs) the kids are not important, right? This is Jesus here. Uh, We need to make sure he sees the important people only. He says famously, as you might know, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Tanya Luna, she wrote a book called Surprise. Embrace the unpredictable and engineer the unexpected. In which she says on the screen there, surprise is actually categorized as something unexpected or misexpected. It's any time that you were wrong and your brain tells you about it. And so she goes a bit into the neuroscience of surprise. Um, But if you don't like being wrong, you probably won't naturally be drawn to surprise, especially as an adult. And I don't think many of us like being wrong. But I want to encourage you to open up to the idea of surprise. These are some of the things she shares in the book. She talks about when you're surprised, you're your brain goes through something that she calls the surprise sequence. And this is what she says it is. It's a strong neuro alert that tells us that something is important about this moment and we have to pay attention. She says our cognitive resources are basically hijacked and pulled into the moment. That's one of the things that's really uncomfortable for some people but also exciting for some people because your attention is completely in the moment. She says surprises actually cause humans to physically freeze for one twenty-fifth of a second. If you don't believe me, surprise someone and measure out (laughs) one twenty-fifth of a second. They're frozen. Then she says... Surprises usually trigger something in the brain. She calls this find, a moment that causes humans to generate extreme curiosity in an attempt to figure out what's happening. So you're surprised, you've been proven wrong about whatever you thought was going to happen next, and then uh, extreme, supreme curiosity. What's going on? I need to figure this out. The next thing is shift, she says. So it's find and then shift. She says, and I think this is what's on the screen, if the surprise is something that forces you to change your perspective, then you have to change the way you've been looking at things. If I wasn't expecting you to surprise me or give me a gift, and now I've just gotten this pleasant experience, I have to change the way I think about you. And maybe even our whole relationship. That's what happens if an enemy gives you a a gift that's actually a good gift. You have to start thinking, is this person really my enemy? And, And in our text today, I think this is what Nicodemus is invited into regarding Jesus. I think he's being told this. 
I have to change the way I think about you and maybe even our whole relationship. That's the surprise invitation of John 3. Uh, turn with me, if you will. They'll be on the screen, but if you have a, the scriptures, you can turn to John 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So right here, let's already stop and and look at uh, some of the reasons that perhaps Nicodemus is closed off to being surprised. Closed off to the surprise of God. See, Nicodemus comes to Jesus with a dangerous certainty. A dangerous certainty. Remember, according to Tanya Luna, surprise gets us when our brain recognizes that we're wrong. But with Nicodemus, there's no room to be wrong. Here's what the text tells us. It tells us he's a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. And depending on the amount of time you've spent in church, you might have heard a lot about Pharisees. You might have heard a lot of confusing things as well. But Pharisees were a sect of religious leaders who sought to sincerely and earnestly follow the law of Moses. And the Gospels, we can't read the Gospels without it being made pretty clear that the Pharisees placed an overdue amount of importance on laws and cultural markers. And so Jesus gets into all these disputes with them. But one of the things that we've assumed or been told about the Pharisees is that they thought their ability to get to heaven was dependent on following the law. Have you been taught this? That, see, the Pharisees thought if they just did everything right they could get to heaven, and that's why Jesus and them butt heads. But the scriptures never actually say anything about that, uh, about the Pharisees. And the the problem with that line of thinking is that uh, we can assume that the Pharisees were, if I thought I had to follow every law to get to heaven, that would make me an extremely anxious person, a fearful person, a very uncertain person. And so we assume that's probably what the Pharisees are because we've been told that. I think it's quite different. Um, Scott McKnight, he informs us that the Pharisees were actually confident, not anxious and uncertain. They were confident in their place in God's God's covenant. And they were not concerned about going to heaven when they died. Why? Because most of the Jewish people didn't think this way about heaven. The Christian understanding of heaven wasn't their understanding of the afterlife at all. They thought the future was a kingdom on earth centered in Jerusalem. And Scott McKnight says that they knew they were destined for the kingdom because they were God's elect and observant as covenant people. So what I want to say about the Pharisees is that they were pretty confident in their place in God's economy. And that this confidence, 
them knowing that they were destined for the kingdom creates an unhealthy certainty in the way Nicodemus approaches Jesus. The text says he's a Pharisee, and then it says he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is sometimes called the Sanhedrin. And it was sort of the governing body of the Jewish nation at the time of Christ. Of course, they were subject to the Roman authorities as well, but they were kind of the ones who, who, who ruled the Jewish people. Which means what? It means that if Nicodemus's paradigm shifts, it's going to have massive ramifications. Ramifications on his job, on his relationships, maybe on his life. If that's the case, there's no room to be wrong, to be surprised, because it will ruin everything you made for yourself. And then third, he addresses Jesus with the words, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. He's got this certainty in the way that he addresses Jesus. And I think that, <coughs> excuse me, that that certainty is important because he sort of comes to Jesus like he's already got him figured out. He's already got Jesus figured out. And I wonder, why does he even go approach him then? So he's got this certainty, but he's also afraid. It says that he approaches Jesus by night. And I wonder what he's afraid of. Why does he go to Jesus, and what is he afraid of? Is he afraid of sort of what the other Pharisees will think or what the other ruling members of the Sanhedrin will think? I don't know, but to ask a rabbi a question, which is what he does, he goes to Jesus, that's to acknowledge them as a, as a teacher. As a teacher. And then place yourself under their teaching. And uh, you then have to sort of acknowledge their authority. And I wonder if some of these dynamics Nicodemus did not want to happen in the midst of other people. It requires humility. See, Nicodemus is supposed to be the teacher. That's what Jesus says later on. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't get it. And so I think it might be humbling for Nicodemus to appear as anything less. But I think it's this unique mixture of certainty and fear that provokes Jesus' surprising response. In verse 3, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus' immediate reaction, How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I mean, Nicodemus goes to Jesus without a clear question. He just makes his statement, we know who you are. And he says it nicely, you know, you're you're probably from God. We know that. We get it. We get you. We get you. And uh, then Jesus responds with this bizarre statement you got to be born again, which is not a response to a question, because Nicodemus didn't have a question. He just says it. And Nicodemus immediately shuts it down. He says, that's not possible. I'm old. 
and I could not enter again into my mother's womb. So, conversation over. No room for surprise. No room for a paradigm shift. No room for something new. See, Nicodemus was interested in Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi, as a teacher, and wondering what this new rabbi on the scene was all about. So he's got him figured out, he thinks. We, we, we know this about you. But I think he is also wondering, what's the new stuff that this teacher's going to do? What's going to be this rabbi's new interpretation on things? What's going to be this rabbi's new way to bring about the kingdom? And he comes to Jesus at night and even says something nice to him. We know you're from God. I think Nicodemus does genuinely want to know what new thing Jesus is doing. But what Jesus does immediately is he sort of flips the script. And he says, I'm going to stop you right there. The new thing I'm doing is you. The new thing God is doing is actually you. You must be born anew. You must be born again. That's the surprise. He wants you to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And that's not just new for Nicodemus. That's for all of us as well. God is doing a new thing, and it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with us. Okay, we're in this series, All Things New. God's making all things new. And yes, that means eventually we'll have some new vision for this next season of ministry for our church. We'll maybe have some new ministries, some new values. Maybe, Lord willing, we'll have some new people up in here. Okay? On and on. But I want to make this clear. The new thing God is doing is you. You are invited into an ongoing work of transformation, of being born, made new again and again by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. There's no new thing that this church will encounter aside from us being made new. So do you want that? And are you open enough to being surprised by God at how that might look? In talking to Nicodemus, Jesus continues in verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And, and the word again there, which I've hinted at, can just mean anew, of course, again, anew. can also mean from above, born from above. You may have read it that way. The idea is you need to be born in a new way, right? And born again might communicate that to you. Or maybe um, Chuck Colson and his book, Born Again, or the whole idea of born-again Christians has too much tainted that idea 
for you. You must be born in a new way. I want to point out two realities of birth before we continue on in John 3. They're obvious realities, but I often miss bringing them to the truth of spirituality. I leave them just about physical birth. To be born is a vulnerable, slow work of growth. We get this when it comes to physical growth. But for some reason, we think about being spiritually born as if it's a light switch. We go from dead to alive like that in an instant, in the blink of an eye, and it's all done. But we all know that with any birth, there's almost 10 months of slow, invisible work being done in forming a human life. And then there's that exciting or frustrating season of everything being learned. Learning to recognize your mother or father's face. Learning to hold your own head up. You know, get your neck falling down. Learning to sleep through the night. Learning to eat solid food. Learning to go to the bathroom. Learning to count. Learning to read. On and on. Growth puts us in a posture of dependence. We know this with humans. When they're growing, they need others. Spiritual birth and spiritual growth is no different. For a new thing to be born in us, we must be willing to be dependent on God and others, committed to the often painstakingly slow work of our own formation. The second chapter of the Gospel of Luke ends with this line. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I want you to think about this for a second. Because the way that God chooses to reveal who God is, is by being born as a human baby. You do realize God is God and can choose any way to choose to reveal himself. It could have been, I don't know, let your imagination choose. Uh, Shepherd's Halloween costume is a dragon. He's been super into dragons, so that's what's coming to mind. God could have revealed himself as some dragon that's like already there, poof, in an instant, massive, mighty, powerful. He comes as a baby, as one of us, and he endures the slow work of growth, dependent on others. If that's the case for God, surely it's the case for us. To be born is a vulnerable, slow work of growth. And then secondly, to be born means we result from a relationship of love. Now in our fallen world, that's not often the case, um, or always the case in pregnancies. But that's the ideal. That's the design. New life is meant to be created when two people intimately interact on the basis of love. Again, we, we're all adults. We all get that. Uh, we, we realize that's how it happens. 
But we miss out on that spiritual truth. Your birth is the result of a relationship that existed before you. And so to be born again in the Spirit is to be born out of the intimate love of God. It's to know that your very existence is from the overflow of love in the Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to the way John says this in his first epistle, in 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God, there's that language, and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So to be born is to exist, to be a result of a relationship that's already going on before you. Relationship of love. And this kind of surprising birth is, again, from above. And according to Jesus, it's by the Spirit. He says in verse 8, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. <clears throat> Notice how Nicodemus's certainty leaves him unable to imagine the life of God that Jesus is inviting him into. I mean, we can't be too harsh on him, though. Because this idea of God as wind is hard. I mean, by its nature, it's hard to pin down. How are you going to pin down the wind? In speaking of the surprising nature of God as spirit, the theologian David Forty says this. This image, it evokes imaginatively a God who is free. The wind and spirit blows where it chooses. Who overflows our categories. Who challenges our knowledge of origins and purposes, where it comes from or where it goes. Who has an endless energy we cannot harness. Who can spring endless surprises. Who is unseen yet effective and who can blow us in new directions. Okay. At this point, you might be wondering, Pastor Matt, are you really just trying to get us to be less certain about who God is? Is that your whole goal for this sermon? Just to challenge our certainty? Doesn't seem very pastoral. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. There's two kinds of certainty. There's probably more. I want to talk about two. Two kinds of certainty, and they're, they're somewhat opposed to each other. There's the certainty of Nicodemus. He's got God all figured out. And then there's a certain kind of certainty that actually comes from a place of deep need. And when that certainty is acted on, it actually opens us to being surprised by God. It makes us vulnerable. That certainty is called faith. 
Uh, that's what happens in another story. So we're going to dive into another story just so we can compare and contrast a little bit, okay? This is Mark 5. Story begins in verse 24. Let's read this together. <clears throat> a large crowd followed and pressed around him, him being Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. I don't know if you see it, but look at how she is the antithesis of Nicodemus. First, she approaches during the day. He approached at night. She approaches during the day in the midst of a large crowd pressing around Jesus. There's no anonymity that's possible for her. And uh, when did Nicodemus approach? At night, likely alone. For the woman, there's no way to hide, okay? Very different. Second, she's a woman. In that day and age, that already puts her in a place of vulnerability. Women had very little um, power and control and options for their lives in that time. Not only is Nicodemus a man, but he's a religious leading man. He's a Pharisee. He's got some clout and power. Then we learn that she has been bleeding for 12 years. 12 years. It says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. And if you've had chronic ailment, a sickness, a pain, something that just won't seem to heal, you know the deep pain inherent in this statement. She didn't just go to many doctors if that's not enough. It says she suffered a great deal under their care. What were supposed to be relationships of healing became relationships of suffering. On top of that, this is a woman who's suffering a very intimate woman's problem. Bleeding, hemorrhaging in a culture of male-only physicians. This is such a place of vulnerability. And even after subjecting herself to suffering under doctors for 12 years, it says it only got worse. This is a woman who's powerless and vulnerable. And Nicodemus, on the other hand, is a member of the Jewish ruling class of the Sanhedrin. He has much power. And without a doubt, this power differential affects the way each of them approach Jesus. The story continues in in verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. I want to know what is it that she heard about Jesus? 
that gave her this audacity that made her want to risk approaching him after 12 years of being failed by those who were meant to heal her, approaching him in such a vulnerable way. What did she hear about him? And I wonder if people are hearing that about Jesus today. Are they hearing the same sort of thing she heard where she was like, I'll risk again. I've been hurt by everyone else. I'll try, Jesus. Verse 28, because she thought, so whatever she heard, she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So if I'm just going to be bad-mouthing certainty today, then there's no place for this story because she approaches Jesus with profound certainty that if she could just touch his clothes, the hem of his garment, she'd be healed. Verse 30, at once, Jesus realizes this. He realizes that power had gone out from him. Excuse me. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples say, and yet you ask, who touched me? Jesus, don't you get it? There's people all around. They're all touching you. Get over it. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, testifying to what she had experienced, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. And she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She approaches Jesus with certainty, but of an entirely different kind than Nicodemus. His certainty makes him closed off to any real change whilst her certainty makes her wide open for healing and transformation before God. Jesus calls Nicodemus' certainty blindness. He says, only if you're born again will you actually see the kingdom of God. He calls her certainty faith. He says, Nicodemus' certainty results in spiritual stillbirth. Nicodemus can't imagine being born again. He can't fathom it. And her certainty results in healing. Not just any healing, either. It's the healing in the part of her body that was physically made to be life-giving and creative. Are you following? Nicodemus is confused about new life while she is made whole in the very place of birth, the place that literally produces new life. Are you seeing the contrast? She models for us how hope and humility can go hand in hand which is what I'm saying all things new will require us to be deeply hopeful 
certainly hopeful and humble at the same time. If she wasn't a woman of remarkable hope, she never would have approached Jesus. She'd have given up years ago and become a person of resentment. She could have been defined only as a victim. I've been suffering this for 12 years and people have only failed me and made it worse. If she wasn't a woman of remarkable humility, she never would have approached Jesus. Her needs were much too intimate to try and save face. But get this. Jesus is so good. So powerful. So committed to holistic healing that the hem of his garment radically reorients the trajectory of this woman's life. So I don't mean to give too much praise to the woman, though she is, I think, a model for us. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The invitation for us is always an invitation to new life. Now we have these two stories. And what I want to do in our closing is offer us a time to find ourselves in either one of those characters. Okay? I wonder if, like Nicodemus, some of us just feel confused or frustrated about the invitation to new life. I mean, you really might be thinking, why are we talking about this? Things are fine. I'm making progress on my own. Sure, I'm going slow, but uh, making progress on my own, I'll get there. Or you might think, how can I possibly be born again? I was already born. You might be wondering... What's the point of bringing my vulnerability, my childlike helplessness to God? And maybe some of you don't feel helpless. You feel fine. You feel like, you know, you and God, you're pretty good. You feel like you've actually got it all figured out. You've read the right books. You know the right words. You listen to the right music. You know perfectly well how to address God with certainty that you're right. I wonder, in your current understanding and paradigms, is there even any room for something new to be born? Can God surprise you with a deeper understanding of who he is? If that's you, be honest with yourself. <laughs> be honest if you're like, I, this, all this news talk. Ugh. But if you've got it pretty well figured out, I wonder if you could gently ask God for curiosity and humility as it relates to your relationship with him. And I'll give you a moment. Go ahead. Ask him now. Ask the Spirit to create space for something new to be born.
For others of us, I wonder if the place within you that's meant for new life, the place that's meant for hoping and dreaming of the future God wants, I wonder if that place feels so wounded and raw that if you're honest, you wouldn't dare dream or hope again. Because every time you did, every time you opened yourself up, you just suffered more. Maybe in the past, you've opened up only to find yourself hurt and taken advantage of. When you went to someone for healing, like the woman with the doctors, you were left only with more pain and suffering. And I know for you, it might be scary or dangerous to approach Jesus with this pain. But right now, in this moment, could you find within yourself the faith just to grab at the hem? Just the hem of the garment. Just like a little toddler holding on to the edge of their blankie for comfort. Could you just grab... At the edge, just the hem of Jesus' garment. Is there room holding on to that hem for Jesus to surprise you with his goodness? As we close today, I'll invite the band back up. and This is what I want to say. If you're actually finding yourself in either of these characters, even just a little bit, I want to invite you to come forward for prayer. So I'm going to be over there in the corner, okay? To your right. And at any point in the next two songs, you could just come up and you could tell me as much or as little. You could say... I feel like I'm bleeding. I feel like I'm Nicodemus. And you know what I'm going to pray? I'll already tell you. There's not going to be any big surprise. I'm going to pray, come Holy Spirit. Jesus says, what's born of the flesh is the flesh. What's born of the Spirit is the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who needs to minister to those places. Uh, I, I certainly, if you're like Nicodemus, I can't make you make room for surprise. And if you're like the woman bleeding, that's... I'm not going to attempt to heal that. That's God's work. But I'm actually going to be over there. And it's gonna, that means people might see you when you get up to pray. But it's the woman who gets up and approaches in the crowd in the middle of the day. And so maybe that's your little bit of faith for this day. And you can see where God meets you there. This is what I'll say. Don't miss an opportunity to receive from God today. That's why we're all here. There's nothing weird about it. (laughs) This isn't performing or trying to look like you got it all figured out or anything. Come get prayer if you want prayer. This next song you might not know, so you can stand or sit and just receive the words as, uh, as what might become a prayer for you.